brand builder, retail expert and founder and CEO of the groundbreaking British Beauty Council, Millie Kendall is an industry icon. So let's dive right in. Hi everyone and welcome to Founder Beauty, a podcast dedicated to beauty entrepreneurs built some of the biggest brands today and where we learn exactly how they did it. We'll cover some of the most intimate stories, their path to success and how they overcame the obstacles along the way. I'm Akash Mehta, CEO and co-founder of Fable and Main, a modern hair wellness brand inspired by ancient Indian beauty secrets. Building Fable and Main has been an incredible journey so far and I've decided to launch this podcast as a founder keen to learn and connect with fellow beauty brand founders around the world. I believe in collaboration over competition and so I'm using this platform as a way to hopefully help and inspire each other what can be sometimes quite a tough and lonely journey. So if you are an entrepreneur or simply just curious how to build a brand, this podcast is perfect for you. So without further ado, it's a delight to welcome our guest for today, Millie Kendall. She's been creating and marketing beauty brands for over 30 years, so it comes to almost no surprise that as founder and CEO of the British Beauty Council, Millie has introduced some of the most game-changing initiatives in the beauty industry. The British Beauty Council only launched in 2018, but it's already widely recognized for the return of beauty since the pandemic began, launching British Beauty Week last year, pushing for greater inclusivity and championing women in the beauty businesses. Millie has also engaged the highest, highest levels of government in support of the council's effort and was awarded an OBE in the New Year's Honours list in recognition for a huge contribution to the beauty industry. I couldn't be prouder and honoured to have her join us on Founder Beauty. So Millie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> I'm excited, me too. So I asked my guests the same question I'm going to ask you. It's who in a nutshell is Millie? Oh my goodness. Um, I am very rebellious. Um, don't take no for an answer. Um, I'm, I'm probably, I think I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, master of none in a, in a way. I, I like to sort of think that I work hard. Um, I'm capable of doing many things, but I'm not particularly brilliant at any one thing. Exactly. I, I mean, I, I resonate with you a lot, especially growing up. It was like, uh, especially when you had those GCSEs and all those exams, it's like I was good at everything, but didn't know what to specifically pursue because I wasn't like the best at one thing. Um, so, but sometimes that's the best kind of person to be because it great, like a great blanket approach and you can look at things in all different ways. Um, but I do kind of want to talk a little bit about your initial kind of career. I know also you went to Henrietta Barnett School, right? But I went to Habs, so quite close by. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I see. I wanted to go to Habs because my grandfather went there. Yeah. And, um, and he was desperate for me to go to Habs. And I passed the exam, the entrance yep. exam, but my parents didn't pass the parent interview. No. Because my dad is a hairdresser. Oh. My dad's a hairdresser, and back then they were very um, they were very particular about the parent community. And so, um, my what was really weird was that my dad, my parents went for the Habs interview. I didn't get in based on their interview. And when I was interview, when I had the parent interview for um, Henrietta Barnett, my dad walked in with a briefcase. And my dad's a hairdresser, so. I thought that was so odd. And I could imagine his scissors and his comb in this sort of what looked like a businessman's briefcase. But I think he was so devastated that he had failed me that he sort of wanted to appear to be more businesslike when it came to the Henrietta Barnett 
um, interview, which is tragic, really. We just, you know? I can't. Believe, I mean, thank God it doesn't. I hope it doesn't exist today. Because I mean, when I was at Habs, I didn't. I don't remember that. But that's so sad to know that these th- those things kind of it was were it was really quite of. biased back then yeah. to the working class and and ironically the strange thing about that is is that i would have taken the entrance exam maybe 78 1978 79 my grandfather who was at habs mm. was um uh his father was a, a, a um an embroiderer in the east end of london so actually habs was originally for yeah. the working class. And then exactly. in the 70s, it became very anti-working uh, class. Exactly. So it was like, it's sort of, it was very, it was a very strange um, situation. But anyway, I did go to Henrietta Barnet and it was a great school. Uh, well, for, for my listeners that are not from UK, these are like... Um... British schools near North London. Um, but uh, yeah, I completely uh, know the whole, um, the areas and the schools and how competitive it can be. But in, in a way, uh, the real journey starts after that, as we all know. Um, I, would, I would love to really kind of go deeper into how your initial, I guess, love or uh, seeds of beauty came to be. I guess also your father, right, being a hairdresser, you were growing up around that from a young age. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so my dad was um, a hairdresser, but he did quite a bit of work at the BBC. So he did things like there were TV shows like I, Claudius, where, that were on sort of the BBC. I mean, back when I was a kid, there were three channels. So BBC was obviously incredibly powerful, not that it isn't now, but back then it was obviously incredibly powerful and they had some really amazing dramas and my dad would go and he ran a salon in central London, but he also would go and do hair for some of these TV shows. So there were always like sort of quite big celebrities in his chair, like John Gielgud, you know, who's a fantastic actor at the time and uh, Ingrid Bergman and, you know, like really famous people. And I would go on Saturdays with my dad, he little had a little MG, <laughs> convertible MG, and I would drive into town with him, and I would just sit, sort of underneath the um, uh, underneath the mirror. There was like a little table and his station. I would just sit there and watch him work, and um, and I guess this sort of I just I love the sort of environment, and and also this sort of um, the social aspect, and the sort of the, it was just always a room full of laughter. The only way to describe it, I don't even know if I was that bothered with the actual artistry of hairdressing. It wasn't that to me. It was just the sort of environment and the sort of collaborative nature of being in that business with all these people together and 
um, you know, everyone supporting each other. And my dad used to bottle shampoos downstairs in the basement oh. of his sort of West End salon. It was in sort of central London. And he used to sell them. And back then, it was beer. So there was a real trend for um, beer shampoo. So it would be like sort of a little bit of sort of shampoo and a bit of beer. <laughs> I just remember my dad like mixing them <laughs> I up. Can't and that. It was so, whatever. Like beer was quite in the seventies. Beer was quite well known for sort of being good for the hair. And so it was just a sort of. Yeah. Um, a thing that people did because I don't, you know, brands weren't like they are now. There was a few of them. So no. um, if you wanted to have yeah. your own brand with your own name on it, sold in your own salon, you literally mixed it up in the basement. And actually I've just Googled it now. It's actually very interesting. It says beer shampoo improves luster, shine, condition and softness because it's got the properties of phosphorus, copper, magnesium and B vitamins. So it's so interesting and it can also help remove dandruff. So, I mean, it's, I, mean I, I get it, right? Because there's so many in Ayurveda, there's so many ingredients from the kitchen that just where there's natural properties can have such great effects on your skin, your hair. So it makes sense, I guess. You learn something new. That's pretty cool. I don't know why it fell out of favour because it was a great ingredient, but you know, I guess that's a sort of the trend of ingredients. You know, there are sort of trend ingredients. And yeah, that was... I think age and alcohol, or I don't know. It probably got too expensive. Is probably what happened. And probably people were drinking while making it. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. very productive. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was sort of like the sort of you know why you could see the sort of um, even as a young girl, it's probably like seven or eight. You you could see the sort of um, multifaceted kind of environment you know there's a social aspect there's a sort of transformative aspect of cutting hair there's the sort of mixing the product in the basement there's the fact that my dad was entrepreneurial and he had his own business and my grandfather had given him a thousand pounds to start the business and you know here he was with celebrities in his chair not that I really knew who they were at the time but looking back on it and and also the sort of beginnings of sort of session hairdressing because he was working you know on sort of um, uh, actors and celebrities on tv yeah. nowadays it seems so obvious that one person can do all those things but back then i thought it was pretty incredible yeah and just to see that from a young age uh, i completely can understand how it can just shape your mind into like the possibilities of um seeing beyond what the average person sees as like a hairdresser or like an entrepreneur you really get to see the true realities of like the ups and downs the basements making things you know like it, it does really shape your curiosities and think of what's possible but I would love to a little bit kind of go into your career journey because if I tried I mean we would have to do a couple of podcasts just to cover your extensive experience which is amazing um so I would love for you to like maybe cohesively in your way summarize the the highlights of your career up to British Beauty Council Uh, yeah I guess um the obvious thing to do with me was to stick me in a, a, a youth training scheme to study to be a hairdresser. That was the obvious thing because my, you know, my dad was frustrated with me and, you know, a lot of friends in the industry. So I was put on a youth training scheme, which I still think was a, a really good scheme and they should reintroduce it, which is sort of training people in the salon to be a hairdresser. And then you do one day out of the salon to go to college. And I loved it and I was great at it. And I got great tips because I was very social and I was very friendly and I was very, very good at the service side of the business, but I was a terrible hairdresser. So I was an assistant at Tony and Guy for a few years. And then I went to New York and I was uh, an assistant at Bumble and Bumble, which is before it was a brand, which was a salon on 56th and Lexington in New York. And I was equally bad as a hairdresser there, but I was a really good assistant, always assisted um, uh, the um, Michael Gordon's business partner, um, Antonio Sadu. 
So I was I was good at one part of the job, but I was actually rubbish with the other. And then knowing that I wasn't very good at it and it was just never going to be a career for me, um, I uh, discovered that uh, I discovered makeup essentially, and there was a sort of small area in um, in at Bumble and Bumble on the ground floor that was dedicated to makeup, and they had brands like William Tuttle, which is a sort of very well-known Hollywood makeup artist foundation brand, and they had MAC, and MAC then was a salon brand. Was it, it was sold in two salons in New York. It wasn't owned by Lauder and in department stores back then. And I just fell in love with makeup. You know, to me, it was easy. You could put it on and take it off. It wasn't like a haircut where you could make a devastating mistake and, and there, was no, there was no recovery from it. You could literally put stuff on, take it off and start again. And, and I really like color and texture and I like color, texture, smell. I just, I love the medium of makeup. And so I thought, that's it. I'm going to be a makeup artist. And, um, I have no patience. So for me, I could do one side of a face really well, but I couldn't do the other. I couldn't match it. I could do something very creative and very strong and I could make people feel very confident and comfortable, but again, I couldn't really deliver. So for some reason, my brain can see what it needs to do, but it doesn't communicate with my hands very well. So I can't physically um, replicate what's going on in my mind. So I started doing makeup. Um, didn't That didn't go very well. Um, and I landed a job in retail working for um, a brand new uh, Japanese makeup brand that had just launched in the US called Shuemura. And I was just a very good salesperson. And I, that my boss walked out. I went and asked for her job. I got her job as a um, uh, store manager. I then went on to be regional manager for the US division. And I was sort of, um, um, Mr. Waymora basically took me under his wing, flew me to Japan and I was, you know, the sales were through the roof for, for a very unknown makeup brand in the US with a name that nobody could pronounce um, with, I think it was something like 2,500 SKUs in the, in the range. So it was a very difficult brand to manage the inventory of, to be honest. Um, in these current times, nobody in their right mind would launch a brand with that many SKUs. Um, and it was... I was good with the inventory. I was good with the sort of um, uh, predicting what the next thing was. I, I was working with the customer. So I knew we didn't have a beige eyeshadow that had enough green in it, though maybe a little bit too orange. And so, and I was very forthright. So I would just say, we don't have the, these products. This is what the American consumer wants. And they would produce, unbeknownst to me, what I had suggested and those products would launch and they'd be very successful. So they kind of nurtured me and they kept me going. And, and it was just an amazing experience, probably the best job I've ever had. And then they sent me to Europe to open the stores here. And, um, and uh, I launched it in Harvey Nichols in 1990 in central London, or Knightsbridge. And um, I then was approached by somebody who was looking to bring um, to the UK an American hair care brand called Aveda, yep. which was probably the first commercial Ayurvedic sort of aromatherapy yep. Ayurvedic mix. Yep. Um, and the founder of Aveda was a guy called Horst Reckelbacher, who was actually an Austrian guy who lived in Minneapolis, but he was also a hairdresser and he knew my dad. So I was, um, I didn't really understand it at the time, but I was written into the distribution contact as a key person 
So basically, Aveda could only launch in the UK if I was involved because Horst was notoriously sceptical of everyone and he didn't want his brand launching in the UK without somebody he knew being involved. And obviously, he knew my dad and he trusted my dad, so I was um, named as a key person. And, um, and and we came up with a pretty radical distribution model for that brand because um, it had been a salon brand in the U- US and what had happened is the salons had diverted a lot of stock. So he had found that his brand's sort of ethos and credibility was being questioned or was coming into question because the you could get the brand in unauthorized salons and he was very concerned about stock diversion. So we launched it in um, Harvey Nicks and on QVC, which he was, I mean, he was not very happy about, but it did really well in both areas. And, um, and it worked. And so it was one of the first brands on QVC. Um, and then I sort of followed that model and launched Tweezerman, L'Occitane, um, and in, in wanting to work across Shuamora, Aveda, Tweezerman, L'Occitane, I inevitably, I set up my own company consulting those brands, looking at sort of how to take an international brand and developing it both in terms of its product offer and the language um, for the local market. So it was all sort of, um, I kind of retrofit everything, I think. So that was all sort of created because there was a, I was approached and I, I'm a bit of an opportunist. I don't like to say no to anything. And so I have to figure out how to fit it into what I'm doing. And then um, around that time, this goes, this is, so, so uh, proof of, of connections, really, and, and how sort of our industry works. The buyer that had been at Harvey Nichols when I launched Shuemura three years before that had gone to Boots, and she was the head of cosmetic buying at Boots, and she called me up and wanted a Vader to, to launch in Boots. And I said, there's absolutely no way, but I'll come talk to you anyway. And we talked about creating a brand for Boots, specifically in between that I must say that there was another funny sort of thing where um I'd met this woman called Nikki Kinnaird and she had opened a fashion boutique in Covent Garden and I had said oh you need some makeup in the mix and so I launched sure more in Space NK but it was the only beauty brand in what was originally a fashion retailer which then led to not I not not from my doing Nikki obviously is very smart and realized that Space and Kate Apothecary was the way to go forward. But I think a lot of the things that I've done are probably the first that I think that's probably what I take most pride in is sort of doing things that are sort of never been done before. Yeah. It's quite, it, I think I just get excited by that. Yeah. And did you find sometimes you had those demons in your head saying, no, 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 it's not been done for a reason? Or like, how did you pass through that? Because each time you did something new. Yeah, I wish I was that clever. I wish I thought about things before. Now I'm ridiculously impulsive and I'll just go, yeah. I mean, no, I do say to people a lot of times with them, when you, when you meet sort of young brand founders and you do, I do often, so I'm sometimes, not often, but I'm sometimes surprised they've not done their homework and they haven't really done their research and they come in and go, I've just developed something and it's really revolutionary and it's a candle with three wicks. And it's like, dear, have you not? Did you not know about Dittig or yeah. whatever? You know, so I'm, I'm often surprised that people don't do their homework and check before to make sure that what they're doing has not been done before. But I think I'm sort of a ferocious reader and I'm very, 
Um, um, I'm very inquisitive, curious, and I like to know everything that's going on in the industry anyway, way before my role as at the British Beauty Council. I've always been very interested in what's gone before. Um, and I think that if you don't know what's gone before, then, you know, look, a lot of people rewrite history. Let's face it, that happens all the time. You know, my my story other people might say slightly different, but, but, you know, it's my story. But, but the fact is, is that dates and when things happen and what happened is really critical. I think when you're looking at building a brand, because you can't say something is new if it's not. And I think, as you said, you have to like keep in really be curious and inquisitive to always learn, whether it's in the past or the now, um, like always reading is important. Do your homework, but also like you'll be surprised where the path takes you. Like I can even for a little bit of my, my journey in creating Fable, but my first job out of university was Aveda. Uh, I worked in Europe, EMEA in UK, fun fact. And then, but I did engineering for four years. So this wasn't like a path. I necessarily was like dreaming about like creating shampoos and conditioners for a living like it wasn't my like five years ago it was not a thing in my mind um and then even when I was in Aveda I was like why am I in working in hair like how did this happen and actually through just being inquisitive learning about it feeling something wasn't fully just connecting for me at the time when we were launching stuff like cherry blossom and sat moss I was like this is not Ayurveda this is not what I grew up with in my grandma's yeah. kitchen so then I was looking and I went to Sephora and I was like hey there's actually there's never in Sephora US there hasn't been an Ayurvedic hair care brand recently or like ever like the first Indian hair brand when we went to them was Fable and Main and then the idea came and now it's like you know obviously my baby it's my passion but it's incredible how five years ago if you said to me or three years ago if you said to me I would have a hair care brand based on Ayurveda I would be like no as if um so I'm similar to you in the sense I think that's, positive, that's you know I think that's really interesting because I think that one of the things that I think we didn't do well with Aveda, and I was the head of marketing, so, you know, that was my job. I probably failed miserably in that regard, is that I'm not so sure that the general public understood the Ayurvedic side of the brand. And so exactly. when, no. when those brands get then absorbed by large corporations, they go for it, it sort of went down a different path and they probably moved too far away from Ayurveda. And now that everyone's talking about hair oil – you know, they've kind they of lost, <laughs> they kind of have lost, you know they what I mean? It, yeah. It's like they kind of moved too far away yeah. from it because there was a number of things like shampoo, the way that product smelled was just amazing. I mean, I still have somewhere on my shelves, the love, the, the original love oil, you know, it just smells like a Veda. And I think that we probably, because Ayurveda was so n n not, not well understood enough, I think, yeah, we kind of let it go. You know, we kind of didn't exactly. talk about yeah, it yeah. enough. Like, I remember this is, hands on, this is like a true experience. I thought Ayurveda was, I had only known about it because of Aveda. And I used to go to the Osceola Spa that Horst owned and have all these treatments and whatever. And um, my very dear friend and, and after this period of time, business partner, Ruby Hammer, had said to me, there's an Ayurveda center. Yeah, there's an Ayurvedic center in Notting Hill, Holland Park. And it was like in this old sort of, you know, Victorian building. So I was like, great, I'm going to go have a treatment. And I went in and I laid down and they just dropped like oil on my forehead. And it didn't smell of anything. It was like, it was actually not, it was not what I expected at all. Because it was like a heavy, really poorly, like did not smell nice at all. Um, 
I mean, now I work with, you know, lots of different brands you know, and, yes. and some amazing sort of Ayurveda sort of aromatherapy. And now I know, but at the time I thought, that's not Ayurveda, you know, but that's actually that's what, what it was. was. And I had had this sort of slightly skewed vision yeah. of it. It's so it's so interesting how, yeah. And, and I think it's, it's not necessarily like every brand has, its, as you know, as you said, has its own path. But definitely, I think um, for me, you know, going very heavily into salons and doing a lot of like the mass, it's very hard to come out of that into like this at home ritual, kitchen ingredient, you know, very uh, home Ayurvedic brand. Um, and I think with the pandemic plus now this whole spurt of like hair oiling and rituals and wellness meditation it is something that um i I feel is going to be a bit of a struggle for Aveda to come out of especially mainly because when you're in a conglomerate like that when when Estee Lauder I worked in LVMH Estee Lauder you know all these conglomerates it's hard to escape that because then it's really bottom line P&L we know these things and these stories um so it's but but definitely what they've done is amazing. Yeah, I mean, what they've done and how they've built that brand is brilliant. And I, and I, you know, and hats off to them. And it was one of the very first brands, I mean, after Matt, that they bought. And it was, and it's an amazing, um, it's been on an amazing journey. But, you know, it often sort of pains me that, you know, I know where it started with him and why. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, uh, and where it ended up. And it just feels like it's sort of, yeah. yeah, and actually, one of the other funny things about the brand was is that he had dishwashing cleanser, fabric cleanser, and like an all-purpose cleanser cleaner, Ayurvedic, right? So amazing. And nowadays, you can you see brands like Diptee just launched a home cleaning line, Aromatherapy Associates did something with the laundress. So now, all of a sudden, those kind of brands, you know, you've got the methods, and there's another one I use at home. They're sort of natural home cleaning home products. A sort of on the rise yeah. and you know he had those back then it was you know he, he was a leader a revolutionary and 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 to yeah. be f- honest like f- for me as an Indian kid growing up seeing Aveda like it was it was amazing to see that whether people fully understood it it was Ayurvedic and these yeah, ingredients yeah it still was in its reality yeah. and I think it's that, interesting it was that a gateway you worked there for, for yeah brands. it was I'm yeah. interested that you worked there My that's first, funny yeah, I was uh, under in the G. I was UK and EMEA, so you know Amanda Larue and the whole team. I was under them, so yeah, it was a great time. Um, and then I worked for Dior, had another whole stint in learning another type of business models. Um, and then I ended up leaving to uh, to be really honest. I no disrespect. I, I learned so much from these big conglomerates, but I really was quite fed up of boardroom meetings, presentation building, and less action and doing. And I thought. The only way I'm going to see the difference in the beauty industry that I want to see, which is, you know, transparency, sustainability, mission-led, conscious, uh, founder-led, was just creating my own brand. And um, very scary to leave, you know, a very cushy corporate uprising job to then quit, you know, at 26 at the time and then be like, okay, I'm going to create this A with my sister, which also never always ends up sometimes working out. But it's been the best blessing. And I think what advice I would give to people, and I think you would do the same, is just you're not meant to know all at the beginning, just do it and you'll figure it out with each day. Um, But as long as you're passionate and you're enjoying the journey, you're forgetting not to, you know, don't be stressed, like enjoy it you'll find yourself looking forward to the day that comes. And now it's like, I couldn't see myself doing anything else, but building new things and connecting people. And it's like, a, I wouldn't go yeah, back. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I started I my first business around the yeah. same time. I think I was about 23 and, and I did it because 
I wanted to still work for Shuamora, but I also wanted to work for Aveda. And each one of them was offering me the same salary every month. And, you know, back then it was quite a decent amount of money. And it was, and then I thought, I could probably take the same, that money from both of them and do both jobs. I don't care if I work 12 hours a day. I was 23 years old. It made no difference to me. And, you know, and it was a start of sort of this sort of, yeah. I mean, having said that, you're right. It is about the journey, isn't it? And it's, I don't mind the stress, mm. weirdly. There are times when I do melt down. Especially it, but, if you learn how to deal with it. Mm. Yeah, and actually going on that, like, how do you? Because today I found myself. I actually just took a moment today with one of my employees was a bit stressed and stuff, and I just said, you know, calm down, it's all good. And then I realized I'm actually really good at stress management somehow. I think because I've just had so many stresses with every day with building businesses yeah. and agency yeah. and this and that. How do you find yourself dealing with stress now after you know a lot of stressful moments in the past? Personally, I think you're either built for it, or you're not. So my entire career. Yeah is sort of predicated on this sort of adrenaline, you know, it's like an adrenaline junkie, you know, rather than bungee jump, I launch a new business. It's that kind yeah. of, so I think some people is just, it's just in their nature. Um, mm. Yeah. And I, I get a real kick out of the sort of, I tend to find the first two years of anything I've ever done really, really exciting. Me too. I just did you do, get bored? I, just, you know, I, I, I get bored sometimes. I do get bored very easily. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a person I think a lot of it is a personality thing. I always say, you know, three years and I mean with the British Beauty Council it's slightly different because it's much more driven by policy and things that I was probably interested in outside of the beauty industry. Like if I'd have done another so 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 obviously after the Aveda Shawmore and I set up my own agency, I ended up with Rivia Millie, which is where I met this woman at Boots who wanted Aveda and Shawmore, and then we developed our own brand with myself and my business partner at the time, Ruby Hammer. And you know, obviously the first couple of years was incredibly stressful because we had about we launched about three hundred and sixty five products, which was a lot at the time. And um, and there was a lot of pressure because Boots put seven million pounds into the project, and you know we had to deliver, and so you're sort of like that first day that we opened a store and just waiting for one person to just buy one product was, was so stressful. But, um, and then after that, I opened a shop with Anna Marie, who was the Anna Marie Solovey, the beauty director at Vogue. So I've always like sort of, you know, liked to do things that were different and, and new. And I do enjoy that, those beginning stages, but I do get easily bored. I guess the thing that's kept me excited at the British Beauty Council is that it sort of combines my love for the beauty industry and my passion for kind of like politics, current affairs and what's going on in the world and sort of um, justice. I'm very, I, I find that um, the thing that, that, that stresses me the most and that makes me less able to cope is injustice. I find that really, um, really gets me at my core. And so being able to, or, or, or trying to, because I'm not necessarily able to, but trying to right those wrongs is something that I get enormous satisfaction out of and much more in a way than when I had a brand or a product or something. I mean, there was an element of that, you know, when you create a product and there's nothing else like it and you've allowed a certain type of person to enjoy a certain type of product, that's very fulfilling. But this because the outside world and the things that are affecting us with the British Beauty Council are so fluid and transient and always changing, it's sort of quite exciting because you're reinventing it all the time. Exactly. And which is hard to do with a brand. You can't constantly reinvent a brand. You have to have the core 
once you've invested in that, it's very difficult to change it. Yeah, it's so true. And also, I think, you know, the best thing is having built a brand yourself and, and other brands, but even your own one, you've seen in reality a lot of the what it's you know what needs to be changed um yes. and i think that's where the british beauty council is so important and also where you get your drive from is just it's a way for you to enforce those which i mean it's so important for brand founders to have an outlet like this because um often we'll just think about it a lot and it'll be fostering inside but we, yes. we get frustrated but we don't change it especially in the big big companies um yeah. i mean i can tell you like in these diors and stuff there were so many things that we were frustrated with but then it was just out of our control or not in our payroll pay slip you know like yeah. we just couldn't no but then you look deeper and you're like who is in control of it no one you can't say certain things there's certain things that you can't say no. nor can the brand but i don't have to pander to anybody and so i can say exactly what i think is right exactly and you know and also so so i have had like a lot of experience that kind of rolls into all of that but but equally i don't i have that kind of personality anyway i'll see what comes into my head but um but i i'm not yeah. I don't know necessarily if I'm I'm afraid of confronting those companies and saying, you know, I'm sorry, but you need more women on your board or, you know, mm. um, you know, this is not an inclusive product. You know, this doesn't appeal to certain people or this packaging is not sustainable. Please stop saying that. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, it's um, because I think, one of the things that I think with our industry is that we have a responsibility to be transparent and honest with people. I think not just because we have a responsibility to consumer, but we have a responsibility to future-proof our industry. And if we don't get our shit together, quite frankly, and start to communicate on a much more transparent level, we're always going to be accused of making up marketing buzzwords that really have a negative effect on people's mental well-being. We need to stop yep. it. So, no, exactly. Um, the, the, what, what, what I like is there's, there's a lot of roots to this, right? Like yeah. um, we can, we, there's, there's the roots of building the brand of tomorrow that puts pressure and that is built in the right sustainable conscious way that then the conglomerates will look at it as benchmarks and say, hey, yeah. okay, but then at least the consumers of those brands are now expecting that sense of transparency, accountability, standard, yeah. certification, et cetera, diversity, you know, especially like inclusivity is a big, big, uh, for me, I can tell you, I've, I've been scarred in boardroom meetings where when I say scarred, I mean like, yeah, mentally, but like yeah. where I'm the only person of color. And then they say, someone said, um, uh, oh, uh, Mexicans are dark enough. And I'm like looking at my skin tone. I'm like, what does that even mean? You know, uh, when we, uh, when we, and then, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's so, sorry. I was just going to say something quite relevant about that, which is quite funny is that, is that when we had our, when we started the British Beauty Council, we, um, we held these town hall sessions on diversity and inclusivity. And this is 2018. And we had a numeral life session. We had two panel talks with big players across the industry. Um, some of them women of color, um, some from the LGBTQIA community. Anyway, we had two panel talks and then we went into these breakout groups and I ran one of the groups and everyone was talking about women of color. And there was an Indian man sitting at the table. There were probably about 15 people in my group and I was taking notes on a whiteboard and I was writing down what everyone was saying. And he just put his hand up and says, can I say something? He goes, you're all talking about Afro hair and you're all talking about women of color. He goes, is anyone looking at me? And we were like, here is a guy, right? He's got disposable income. He is interested in buying skincare and hair care. Who's talking to him? That was, it was the most, 
it was it was so obvious that yeah yeah sorry to interrupt you sorry that's, no no that's Ruined such a train good of thought thank now. you for saying but that it, but no, it was really so like it was so monumental I mean I was sitting around the table with some really big players that are very influential you know to this day in terms of diversity and inclusion everyone sort of mouth dropped thought nobody had even thought of talking to this man here sitting here and and and, and you know, especially was, as a consumer yeah. like as a potential whether it's an internal thing and corporate thing but also like mm. We always we used to always refer to um, the, our customers and our com- and the companies we used to work for as she and then this and you know like never would we ever think of having potentially like it would be checklisted right unfortunately in these companies it would be like oh we're looking at a marketing campaign we need to like do X Y Z but never would there be like a man of color as, as an option that would be like ticked with either a woman of color or. Um, a man, but probably not of color, um, and and often it's, it's it is dictated by data. I get it, um, but actually, it was one of my trips to China was the most interesting one for me. Where often I was told, "Oh, but you've got to consider the majority of the market is in China. We've got to think what resonates in this region. If we're looking for a global face." And I went then in Nanjing Road or in the biggest road. I saw Uniqlo at that time did a big billboard with a black man right there in, in the front, in the forefront of the China yeah. of, of the busiest street in China. And I thought, this is the change, right? Like we're yeah, assuming yeah. certain. Oh, but why don't we, as a powerhouse, be the force of change you want to see? But then I thought, okay, it's, um, you know, maybe I'll just quit my own brand. And do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of remember being a kid and it sort of being the coolest job that you could get in retail was Benetton because they told, they told you how to fold your clothes. And Benetton was like the whole thing was about all different people from all different walks of life, all different colors. And it's like, I feel like we've gone backwards rather than forwards. We were at this sort of on this precipice of really some change really happening you know late 80s early 90s and then all of a sudden it kind of went the wrong way I I, you know I mean I I think that it's a pendulum it's always going to be a little bit of this pendulum action yeah it's 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 possibly because particularly in our industry like we always talk about indie brands and and I think in the UK we are a beacon for indie brands we really are we are really amazing at them. We've got amazing creativity and craftsmanship and great farming, organic farming. Tons of great stuff happens in this country. You go back to the body shop and Yardley and Videl Sassoon and, you know, great founders, great brands, etc. But what's, what's, what happened in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, maybe mid 90s, was that a lot of the larger corporations bought a lot of the indie brands, which is exactly what you were saying before, those changemaker brands got bought up and sucked into these large corporations. So brands like Mac, which was obviously incredibly diverse and incredibly cons- inclusive, got sucked up into mm. a, a corporate environment. And now we're, on the, we're in that sort of phase again where we've got an amazing amount of indie brands that are doing great things both in terms of inclusivity and sustainability. And every single corporate company is watching. They're watching, watching, watching. Exactly. They're taking all of that innovation and trying to build that into their profile. And sometimes, you know, back then they would buy them and suck them in, take the innovation and, you know, let's face it, homogenize that across a variety of different brands. Um, I kind of wish they put their money where their mouth is, pay those brands to do what they do best. They, you know, indie brands would be happy to give their innovation, their ideas and their learnings to those larger corporations, but they can't have it for nothing. 
No. That's not fair, <laughs> you know. Um, it's so true. But you're right. It's that pendulum. It just keeps going round. And so, I mean, you know, when you're as old as I am, you've seen it going round a few times. But, <laughs> but you know, yeah, it does I, go round and round. And that's why you have to constantly. I mean, even now, it's happening a lot in shorter intervals, just because of everyone's ephemeral mindsets and quick in and you know, barriers of entry for brands and in and out with retail. Also, it's just. Um, it is quite uh, exhausting, but exciting at the same time. But I, I do think there's going to be a change. Give, give it five years where you're getting a lot of the amazing talent that were in these conglomerates are now going to the indie brands, whether they're SVPs, presidents, CEOs, COOs, or MDs. Then they might go back into the conglomerates, right? Because um, it happens. So maybe with this recycling um, of talent across now a more interesting level field where it's no longer... Like before, I remember going into in, in corporate, it was like, oh, you'd go from a Dior to a Chanel to a YSL to a Burberry to... You know, that was a thing. Now it's like I'm going to from a Dior to a Lime Crime to a Live Tinted to a back to a Dior. Like, you know, you can yeah, yeah, yeah. change yeah. this up a bit which is going to be interesting to see how the talent shift changes the brand. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but I actually have had like a, a sort of, um, I, I think a lot of like the sort of young indie brands, what they really need is like an operations or trading director type person coming in and really helping them to sort of do the business side of the business because they can be creative and they've got a vision. They need to know how to scale up. And, um, and actually, interestingly, I have had a few people on that sort of trading director level coming to me recently and I have connected them to uh, startups that they've been quite excited to get involved in. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's 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 a really interesting thing to keep an eye out for. Yeah, definitely. No, and, and I even I mean, now, now people can work from with... home as well. So, you know, people working from home. Exactly. That makes that even more accessible. Exactly. Other countries too. Even yeah. for, for Fable and Maine, we're now 30 employees. I've got my GM is in Spain. I've never met her in Barcelona. She's from Puj. Yeah. Uh, but uh, never met her ever. And she's yeah, been working yeah. with me for two years now. So it's kind of crazy how I can say these things and... Uh, she's finally coming for herself, which is launched next week, but um, I'm going to meet her in person. So, so I've, it, I've done cool that, that obviously the same. Yeah, yeah, we've done the same. So I've got um, our yeah. COO is in Manchester and I met her last year at British Beauty Week yeah. for the first time. And she's tiny. Oh, you, you don't realize that with the Zoom. Yeah, that's what I'm curious. Like, yeah. is uh, the, the perception of actual, like the physical form. It's like, wait, I didn't expect you to be like this. Um, yeah, but there was actually, some guy, no, there was some guy that showed it. up on my, oh, I was yeah. just going to tell you about this guy that showed up on my door recently and I've Zoomed quite a lot with him. And the first thing he said to me when he yeah. came to the office the other day was like, I know I'm a lot shorter than you are. <laughs> and they have to preface that. I love that. He really did preface it, literally yeah, standing at my door before he even walked in and goes, I know I'm a lot shorter. <laughs> yeah, it's, this is the, the, the Zoom thing. No, I love it. Um, but I, if you could just for our audience listening, just uh, encapsulate what British Beauty Council stands for, what it's all about. Um, it would be really good to paint a picture. Yeah, so um, so we're not a trade body, just to sort of caveat that. Um, we were really set up... Um, as a sister organisation to the British Fashion Council. And the British Fashion Council launched, I think, in 83. And what it did for fashion was really amazing because it really did elevate the reputation of the fashion industry. You know, you wouldn't have had, you know, Alexander McQueen without the Fashion Council. There was an amazing amount of um, support given to young designers and the startups and the talent of the day. And um, what, what became very apparent was is that our industry is incredibly disparate there was a lot of um, question over the value of our industry. I'd worked in a lot of different parts of the industry, so I felt quite 
well versed at looking at it as a total business because I'd worked in hairdressing and makeup and then brand and then retail. And so to me, it was one big sort of happy family. But it was when you started to look at it, actually, you know, hairdressing doesn't speak to beauty. Beauty doesn't speak to retail. Retail doesn't speak to, you know, it's all very um, sort of it was all very disparate and broken. And I felt that we needed to do something, but I didn't want to do a trade body. So I spoke to Caroline Rush, who's the CEO of the British Fashion Council, and I said, look, we want to do something that's very similar to what you do, but for beauty. And she really gave us some amazing sort of tips on how to set it up. And so we set it up in a very similar model. It's a not-for-profit. And um, really the remit is to raise the reputation um, of our industry in order to future-proof it. So, you know, supporting an inclusive and successful British beauty industry. Um, and so we started in 2018 and what we did was we approached all the trade bodies and made sure that they understood that we weren't coming in to sort of steal their limelight. They were still very relevant and they had their membership, but we wouldn't operate like that. And that what we were trying to do was bring everyone together to work together for the good of the industry. And we uh, defined the industry at first and then we valued it. So we wanted to have a really robust valuation so we could go to government and talk to business leaders and say, this is a 30 billion pound a year industry. Um, we generate more uh, revenue for the, the, the exchequer um, than pubs and car motor, motor vehicle manufacturing. So car manufacturing. Um, and, you know, oftentimes if a, if a, you know, I don't know, Vauxhall plant is in jeopardy and Milton Keynes, a government runs in to save them. But if an eyeshadow flurry plant in Aberdeen is closing, no one gives a toss. Sorry, but they don't. So true. So, you know, so, you know, and it's always just a, we've had a, there's a, there's been a linear perception of our industry, both in terms of its economic value, its cultural value, its social value. People don't see the history of our industry. They don't see the history of the brands that we've produced. They don't see the the mental health benefits of our industry. They don't see the fact that, you know, we're, we're, you know, literally a a huge part of the community. I mean, you can't go to any village or town in the UK without seeing a beauty salon or seven or a hairdressing salon or a barber's. Um, And, um, you know, it's a transformative industry that makes people feel good, whether that is sitting in a bath or oiling your hair or going to have your legs waxed, whatever it is, it makes people feel good. And um, it's not just fluffy stuff that girls play with. So it's sort of, it was really about kind of adding a sort of serious layer to what we do and just to make sure that government understood we're not stupid people that couldn't get a job anywhere else. We actually chose this, (laughs) you know, we chose this lifestyle because we really enjoy it and we're actually a really good group of people. Now we're like the poster child for all the government initiatives. So we're good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're in. But it, did, it took time to get there, I'm sure. It was, it, I mean, it was. Sad, it, sadly convincing, it, I'm sure. Yeah, it yeah. was like, it was four years of hard graft, but, you know, it, it was four years and not 20. So that was, and I, and I would say that, you know, COVID did sort of um, escalate that impact because, if there was one industry that they didn't know or understand, it was our industry. And I was armed with all the data. The government didn't have it. They didn't know what jobs we did. They didn't know how many women were in our industry. They didn't know how many. There's 95% of our industry in the UK uh, are SMEs. 95%, that's huge. 88% are female-owned businesses. So I had all of the data. You know how they, what do they say about data? 
very valuable. You know, they needed me. <laughs> they didn't. Can't really buy it all the time. You just no. Yeah, it's very, very valuable. Yeah. So that was sort of that's yeah, the sort yeah. of raison d'etre of the British Beauty Council. And four years later, we've just done an evaluation of the work that we've done and what we do moving forward, and it's still the same, really. There's so much more work to be done. That's the thing, and and, and as you know, there's so much pre-work that needs to be done from like you know on your to-do list but there's also new things that are coming in every single day yeah um so it's just uh, that's why that that penchant for like always listening and, le- and wanting to be eager to learn is is crucial because yeah. yeah i mean the pandemic was a perfect example of that like that was a whole new form of a, a new reality for us um especially the beauty industry how it all shifted yeah. and then yeah. now looking at our online sustainability and our social media I mean, I, I used to do TED Talks on like social media um, kind of mental health and all about the changes in white matter linked to the dopamine. And, and that's a whole thing with the beauty TikTokers and influencers and about beauty yeah. standards and making sure people are actually portraying it in its honesty and not Photoshopping. And there's a, there's a lot to it that there's, a, I think there's when lots to it. In, there's lots to it. And yeah. you're right about this ever changing kind of industry because we've just been tasked now with writing um, regulation and licensing for beauty therapists because in the past our in, our industry mm. in this country has not been licensed or regulated and certainly not the way it is in the US or in Europe. And um, so we, we have to do that. We have to because it's a legitimate problem that we've got with people um, being able to access fillers and Botox and or you know um, toxins and being able to inject them into people's faces. And so. Um, but we have to be very careful now because we're going to write this legislation and it's going to take us two years to write it. But in two years from now, will there be something different? Will, you know, lasers, laser has changed. Yeah, but when you're writing these legislations, do you have to keep it quite agile in being able to potentially change? Because as you know, especially the ones that were created during the pandemic, they must have shifted. It's very difficult to change it once it's been published. So we have to sort of try to think about what's going to happen in the future. So if the technology with regards to, let's say, for example, lasers, which, I mean, I mean, think about this, okay? So when we first started the British Beauty Council four years ago, we did the definition and, and there was an, a sort of a, a, a Brexit moment for us where tattoos, permanent makeup and tattoos, we went to, we did a massive sort of piece of research with an insight agency called Britain Thinks about what should be included in our definition. And tattoos and permanent makeup was split vote. 49.51. Some people thought it should, some people thought it shouldn't. So I left it out, the definition, because I thought people aren't out in agreement. Now, dermablading and, you know, all the eyebrow lamination and all the stuff that's done on eyebrows, which essentially is semi-permanent makeup, is so prevalent, it wasn't as common four years ago. That's only a very short window. And we've had two years of the pandemic. And it's even still... You know, that's changed so much that I think if we went back out to market with that, people would have a different view on it. So you have to really kind of, you know, I mean, it, with a brand, you have to be so up on what's going on. Yeah. You got to, you know, in other people's iterate. gardens. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I yeah. think the, the good thing is, is also like kind of thinking at like foundations too. So once you do the first legislation or the brand does the first movement into, let's say, becoming more sustainable, the B Corp or whatever might be the, the long term, but having yes. those wins does make it a little bit easier. And also you yourself get more motivated, you get good yeah. learning. So I think it's about starting it, but knowing that. The journey is ever is ever growing. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that, that that's that thing about being a sort of founder of anything, isn't it? It's that you 
you yeah. have to start somewhere. Just start. Just start. Yeah, You've got an start. idea, just start. And I mean, loads of people have great ideas, but just get started because it's time time goes very quickly, you know. Exactly. I, I, and actually, like, for people like us who just love to do a lot of things and are getting get bored quite quickly, it's good that we work in an industry that is always changing because it keeps us on our toes and excited. Otherwise, it'd be quite boring if it didn't move. And also, it wouldn't be worth working in because it needs to move as well. So Yeah, and I think yeah. that, you know, what you it do is you become, you, become you, you start with somebody who's watching the movement and then you become the mover, you become the person that's moving that industry in a certain direction. And that is incredibly fulfilling. You know, what you've done um, with your brand has, has changed the market. It's changing the market. It's like, you know, I think I was more excited to see an, to see an opening for Ayurvedic brands and people actually talking about them than anything, because it takes me back to when I was in my early twenties and we were trying to get people to talk about it. Probably why we dropped it with Aveda was people weren't interested. They weren't, they didn't understand. It, life wasn't as global. There wasn't, we didn't have the internet, really. We didn't use email. There was no social media. So what was going on in another country wasn't coming into my living room every day. Now I'm aware of what's going on. So it just becomes, yeah. But you know what, one little fun, yeah. fun little funny, side story is that even like a few weeks ago, the journey has still got a long way to go, but I remember speaking to one of my retailers and we we're work- updating a shelf strip and then we were saying, oh, you know, we want to have Ayurvedic finally in there, no longer Indian. And they were like, oh, we're not sure if it resonates with our consumers. And, you know, bearing in mind also you have like middle America and a lot of people don't even know Ayurveda, what it is, what it stands for. So while there is truth in that, I said to myself, I said, look, as a founder, I make the decisions today and no longer work for anyone. And I want to be the voice of change. And as the only Ayurvedic care brand, hair care brand in this retailer, why not be the first to put it on the shelf ship? And yes, people might not understand it, but let's teach them this way, you know? So actually, that is quite exciting to be at a position of the privilege of making my own decisions and saying, okay, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to push it. I'm going to do it. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah. It makes a difference in a way. Yeah. I I think that's really, I think that's amazing. When I had Ruby and Millie in, um, in boots, when we first launched in boots, we were told that the staff had to wear skirts. And I was like, why? Want them to wear trousers. They're much more comfortable. I've worked on the shop floor for years. And we're talking to people that have always worked in an office and had never worked on the shop floor. And they were like, well, it's a rule here that people have to wear skirts. I mean, can you imagine like 20s, how was that? 30, 25, 30 years ago that you only, you could only wear a skirt. I'm like, that's sorry. That is not happening. I'm sorry. My team are wearing trousers on the shop floor. You know, it's those little things that you kind of. Something with those. Yeah. And it changed, it changed that environment forever. Yeah. That's the boldness that you kind of have to have. But I do think that's sort of like, I think that's, those are the exciting moments, aren't they? When, 100% 100% the, these know, quick wins are actually they will add up to a bigger picture and, mm. and also there I call them seed seeded wins they're like yes. they're like little seeds you're planting that you might not see the full tree now but later even maybe you know 100 years time or 10 years time or even one year's time at this rate it might create a lot of butterfly yeah. effect in I mean I, I so um, that's the whole yeah I totally said butterfly effect I'm writing that down um, that because that is that is yeah. exactly what it is. I always say because I own a PR agency as well, and I was saying to I always say that yeah. when you talk to a journalist, don't talk about a product, talk about an idea. And I oftentimes suggest other 
brands and products that maybe aren't my company's my company's not representing because it builds on a story. So I represent a brand called Subtle Energies. I don't know if you know that brand, but it's an Ayurvedic yeah. aromatherapy brand, and it's a beautiful, beautiful brand um, created by this woman, for, uh, Farida Arani, an Australian Indian family, live in Australia. And it's just a beautiful brand. And so the conversation about Ayurveda opens up an opportunity for them. But equally, if I can talk about it and it opens up a, an opportunity for you or, you know, I've worked with um, a, another founder of an, another hair brand, uh, Ayurvedic hair brand. And, you know, it's that conversation helps everybody because it opens up something. So you're right. It's that sort of butter. It just creates more, more people talking about something. Because also keep in mind, sometimes um, people like to feel like they're part of a movement, don't they? The consumer wants to feel like they're part exactly. of a movement. Exactly. Consumer's not always as radical and renegade as the founder of a brand is. No. So the more that Ayurveda is talked about as a sort of method of well-being, then the more the consumer yeah. feels like they're on some kind of journey with you. And, and truly, that being that collaboration is so. Like my, I started kind of this year going into the, the venture capital space, starting to invest in brands. And my first check I wrote was for In The Wild, which is an Ayurvedic brand by Deepak mm. Kosla. And all my kind of advisors and people were like, well, why would you invest in an Ayurvedic brand that's going to do hair, hair oils and stuff? And it's a competitor. And I'm like, no, because by investing in them, we're helping fable them together. It's the industry. I don't mm. care about if a consumer chooses my oil or their oil. At the end of the day, I'm happy for them to just learn about Ayurvedic oils. So uh, maybe it's my, maybe I'm not like, that's just who no, I am. No, I think, I think but, I'm um, the same. I would be, yeah. I would be exactly the same. When Anna and I launched our shop, we launched this shop called Beauty Mart. And the idea was, is that it was going to be a, and I'd come out of Ruby and Millie and we'd made loads of money and we'd, you know, I'd probably could have just stayed taking that check, but I was just bored with it. And it felt like I needed I felt like I needed to do something different. And we, yeah, we started this shop and it was basically a beauty editor's edit. So it was what Anna would put on a page and she was the beauty director at Vogue. And it would be her sort of curation of products. So we had everything from Maybelline mascara to, I don't know, BioFX 135 pound serum. It was like very, you know, a mix of all different price points, a mix of all different brands. And it was very quickly on the back of it, um, retailers started creating departments that were built in the same concept as, as our as beauty mart and we didn't have the muscle that some of those retailers had you know especially the big players in the uk but they very quickly copied what we did and so i said to anna success is going to come in two ways either we're going to be the biggest or we're going to be the first exactly you know, it can only be two ways you know and i'm kind of really happy with both yeah, yeah. um and it, yeah right i'm really happy with either one of those and you know what we weren't the biggest but we did start a movement that allowed a lot of indie brands because also the other thing was is that retailers had previously said you've got three foot we need a brand that fits this module right this is it you can't break it down and have one product here one product there one product here and a lot of indie brands have smaller array of products or they have a hero product that's the only one they really have any stock of and they really want to push that forward and so what we did was we cherry picked and we allowed a very small edit of those different products so it it changed retail you know and it meant that it wasn't retail became less about brand dominance and more about 
really good product. And that is invaluable. I mean, that's also where it's where you become um, a kind of, I call it that battle between being the, you know, whether you're the beneficiary or whatever. And it's like, sometimes it's so much more fulfilling and compelling, especially as you do more in with your, with your life and you, you have more businesses and stuff you start getting less excited by the ego and the wins that you get in your pocket and you want to, you get more excited by the impact you're making in the industry and others. Yeah. And I think that's a testament to what you've done with British Beauty Council. And the way you're also speaking today is like, you're just exciting about making change for everyone, you know, um, and in the, in the right direction. Yeah. And I guess the British Beauty Council is a really good vehicle for that because commercially people look at you when you say yeah. that and they think, Oh, I'm not investing in her. <laughs> you know, because yeah. you know, they'll be like, yeah, okay, that's be. great, but Bye. <laughs> what numbers? I want data. Yeah, yeah. I'm not invested. And, and it's right. Don't invest in me. In I want what's good for everyone. Yeah. I mean, it is so that, that, that makes for a great, a great magnet or a quote, but not for nothing else. Yeah. In reality. I mean, it is that sort of thing I was saying to someone. I'm like the sort of, I'm like the best thing you never invested in. Because, you know, I don't care about money. I'm not interested. I don't know why. Oh, I'm just, like, not my. It's a sort of slight, yeah. slightly sort of, I mean, it's slightly insane. Like I always say when I have board meetings and whatever, and they're like KPIs, I'm like, what's that? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I just matter. get on with it. You know, I am the same. I'm just doing it. I'm like, but you know. That's incredible that, that you have, because um, I, I don't know if you're the same. I had a, I had an agency. I have, but I don't know what it is. It's not even there. But I was like the worst agency owner because I was like, I oh, don't worry about the cost. I just want to help. I just want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> do you sometimes go above yeah, and beyond yeah. for your clients? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, t- <laughs> I hard. do. Yeah, <laughs> it is really like, You're, because I'm just not very good at like, I can, I have like all the passion in the world for it and I can really sell anything that I'm really passionate about. But yeah. I'm really crap at asking people for money. It's just not yeah. my thing. And because I don't really see it as a sort of, I actually am quite altruistic about our industry. I really yeah. see it as really helping people. Like yeah. I don't see it as like a sort of commercial entity. To me, that's just a byproduct. It's not. It's not exactly. the intention of our industry. That's yeah. just what comes, you know, with it. So mm-hmm. I know it's really, it's really terrible, isn't it? But but I guess in in that way, you know, what I am probably good at is looking at a business and going, mm, "You haven't got really much purpose, have you? Like, what's what are you doing this for? You know, and, I'd probably be really good on a board. The, the you know, break. Mm. but that's the make or break of things today because the crude reality is there's enough money out there people want to put money in things what separates the the ones that will succeed in whatever definition of success is for that founder is the deeper part which i think you can really craft and articulate to the founder which is probably really invaluable yeah i mean i did sort of think like what's next after the british beauty council i was thinking i could do some non-exec roles but i would only really be able to go in and sort of help with building purpose Mm. I'm not a no, commercial he's... person. That's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in what is your story. I'm the kind of person that will pick it apart and go, oh, I don't know if I believe that. Or, you know, I, I'm very sort yeah. of, that's the kind of thing that rocks my, you know, that rocks my world is that I really like to see, you know, efficacy and truth and in, 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 in you know, brand story. So, yeah, it's funny. Maybe it is just a personality. Well, maybe one day we can cash, we can you know? do something on that because I think uh, that's exactly what I'm thinking too. It's 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 and there's a lot of to be done on that, and there are a lot of brands that need help on that too because they might have it, they just don't know either how to articulate that yeah. or how to find it. Um, and even the big ones as well. Uh, I, I don't want to lose hope on some of these uh, larger conglomerates because 
when you're in these companies, as you know, there are like very few at the top and there is opportunity for change. Yeah. Um, it just needs a little bit of convincing. And for me, it was a lot of like uh, presentations and sign-offs. Yeah, and, I think uh, a lot of it. One, I think One win, it, quick win. I think there's a lot of unpicking that needs to be done with a lot of those large corporations. I mean, listen, I talk to a lot of them all the time and as you've worked for a lot of them. I've never worked in corporate, so I'm not so sure. I understand the culture as much as you do. But what I do see from coming in from the outside is there is a lot of historical, um, sort of, they bound themselves so tight, it's hard to unwind what they've done. And so it's going to take a little bit longer to unpick that. But I mean, I think, you know, I feel that they have the interest in it. You know, I think they want to. They have the interest. And, and I think they know they need to. But the one positive thing that I stood on was they are very okay to change once a similar benchmark or another heritage or something brand does something. So you have to like, maybe hope one does it, and maybe even if you can help all of them, and if one starts it, that butterfly effect is so much quicker than you think. Um, just because then they feel like, like for example, if, Dior does, if Chanel does something, Dior would be like, oh, perfect, now we can do that. That it makes sense now, uh, which is quite funny because it's not listening to the data or the market, it's listening to... Uh, the competitors. It's trend, though. A lot of it That's is trend. Reality, you know, it's, trend. it's it's just you know, it's if if we're you know, it's that whole sustainability piece. I mean, the biggest problem with sustainability is it's become a trend. That is the biggest problem with it. Exactly. This is not a trend. This yeah. is a an absolute no, is... crisis to the humankind. That is it. It's an absolute mm -hmm. crisis. And exactly. You know, it's a very fine line between telling people to stop buying all beauty products or trying to make sort of you know, um, yeah. to, to help people to understand what's the best way forward. It, it, there's a very fine line between that. You know, our industry it exists. I want it to continue to exist. But I think we need to find ways of um, reducing our carbon footprint, but without lying to the consumer. I mean, the good news is we're not nearly as bad as fashion. We've got less, our impact is less damaging than other industries. But, but it's growing but, and it's, yeah. we have to monitor. It's so true. I, I mean, one thing I've, I've done, uh, inspired by a guest on my podcast, is I've just, um, I'm finishing my course in Cambridge on sustainability and circular yes. economy. One of many I'll just take. Um, learning, I've now put in my company foot, uh, carbon, footprint track, uh, carbon footprint trackers. And mm -hmm. just like I'm starting because I'm like noticing how quick we're growing. And if I don't put these in place, we'll forget and we'll get too big before it yeah. gets too late. And I have to even us at the, when I started my company. Yeah. Yeah. I was just so going to say, even, you know, we've, we joined the um, SME climate hub, which is sort of a sort of part of the UN, uh, um, um, uh, sustainability goals, um, development goals, uh, sort of, it's part of that, that sort of, um, platform and it's designed just for SMEs. So we joined that to be able to monitor what we do, even though we don't even produce a product. But so I think it's very important that people do what you're doing because you have to start somewhere. But the SME Climate Hub, I think, is great because it's really practical. And it's very simple. And, you know, there's it's um, yeah, it's a really it's just really simple and, and really easy for sort of anybody to access, whether you are a nail salon or a, a brand, you know, so um and it's, I'm on the website now. It's yeah, we there. just we just we joined that sort of um, last year, and um, and that's been really helpful. Just into just to, to remind us, you know, what we're doing, where we're purchasing things from. Um, and I, I was talking to um, 
a great woman yesterday, Jo Chidley, who uh, has a small indie brand in Glasgow called Beauty Kitchen. And she's developed RE, which is a circular economy packaging uh, and refillable station. And so she's working with um, M&S, I think, Unilever, Elemis. So she's pulling in lots of different brands from different levels, so across the industry, to take on her refillable packaging so I say it's hers but it's it's her idea and so I can go and get my product filled with Elemis and then I can use my Elemis take it back they will then I can then refill that same type of packaging but with um I don't know something else some radox whatever I want really exactly Um, which is actually quite a clever idea yeah, so that circular economy piece is really clever. I learned a lot actually talking to her yesterday, just briefly. I want to say she did the same course at Cambridge. Um, yeah, it was super, super interesting. Um, and uh, she's a big believer in the cra- uh, cradle to cradle, is it? So, but what she was saying was, is our industry's our industry's not that bad because just by the nature of the fact that we use plants, it we're not. And and so it's it's not such a bad it's quite circular in some ways our industry. Um but I mean just basic things like when you take a shower, where's the water go? Why doesn't that grey water get used to flush your toilet? Do you need clean water to flush your toilet? You're not putting your hands in it. You know what I mean? Like little things like that. It's sort of you start to think it's so obvious. Why aren't we using the grey water out the out that runs out yeah. of the shower? No, and I think that's to that's flush our just, toilets. I think there's like, kind of everything. There's like all like learnings and not necessarily accountability, but just an eye on all the actions you're doing, and those quick changes will add up to um, a greater change. But for sure, I think as an industry, luckily we're not as you know. I don't like to say the word bad, but like, you know, no, well, I mean, we are, far out, yeah. you know what I mean? But yeah. compared to yeah. the meat industry or even fashion, but there's still a lot we can do being, absolutely. I guess you could say champions of our own industry. Abs- absolutely. We, we, um, you know, I'm a big believer in doing a deep dive and, and finding out the ugly truth. And we um, hired a, another insights team to do a deep dive into our industry. They don't come from our sector, but they did a deep dive into the industry to sort of basically reveal what the good, the bad and the ugly was. And actually, we're not as bad as we thought. But there are, there are some very important things. Number one is collaboration. Have to work across aisles because if you don't, you'll never get anywhere. It's all very well Unilever having um, a, a carbon neutral goal by 2050. But who are they going to sell the products to? Because we'll all be dead by then if we don't get our act together. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, yeah. so it's those kind of um, – but collaboration is really important. And then transparency was the sort of second most important thing. And we just launched the Planet Positive Beauty Guide which is being updated at the moment, yeah, but it's just a sort of guide for consumers and, and, and industry just to sort of understand the difference between all the different type of ter- types of terminology because we very often hoodwink the consumer into thinking something no, is No, I, I actually read it. It not. was yeah. so invaluable, like with the, all about the yeah. greenwashing and, what, and it just made it very, it was very uh, informative, very friendly to read and I thought... Generally speaking, those are the kind of documents that, whether it's SMEs, consumers of the beauty industry, um, it's really invaluable, these assets. Yeah, we've added quite a lot to it. It's just being redesigned at the moment, but there's a lot being added to it around the people as well, you know, fair trade, minimum wage, Mm. you know, all of those things that I think we need to know because obviously 
you know, people are incredibly invaluable to our businesses and we need to make sure that, you know, we cannot be sustainable if we're not looking after our people. No, exactly that. Well, I mean, before we, we wrap it up, because I know you probably have a busy day ahead and um, uh, we could talk, I mean, we're going to talk offline because there's so much more to go deeper yeah, in. Yeah, definitely. Um, I do have some fire on questions. So okay. there's a first thing that comes to your mind. So the first thing is, What's another beauty brand that you're currently loving? It could be one that you represent. Uh, what beauty brand am I currently loving? What did I put? Irene Forte. She's amazing. Irene Forte skincare. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love her product. I've been using her. I put her oil on this morning um, and um, her night cream is amazing. Yeah, Irene Forte. And her story. She's, she was on the, one of my first guests in the podcast and her story oh, is well, she, Yeah, she's great. She's cool fantastic. Really, I yeah, mean, Rocky she's a real Forte. hard worker and, you know, and her, her struggles yeah. and her hurdles are very unique to her, but um, important just the same. Exactly. Uh, what's a guilty pleasure of yours? A guilty pleasure of mine. Um, oh, watching CNN. Is that really boring? I don't know why. It's I mean, <laughs> that was like, not the. Everyone's like reality TV shows, chocolate. I don't, I don't like, watch CNN. any of that. Like, no, I just don't watch CNN. I'm a really big fan of Christian Amon Paul. I don't know. Um, <laughs> going home that. and pretending I'm Christian Amon Paul and I'm a CNN newsreader. I don't know. Yeah, but I, that so, is great. I'm such a, such a geek. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. Uh, well, what are you currently watching or reading apart from CNN? <laughs> um, what am I currently watching or reading? Oh my god, I'm what I'm reading a book. Oh, I think it's called All the Men, and it's about a woman who helped um, uh, men with AIDS and HIV who are HIV positive in the eighties um, in mm. um, Bill Clinton's constituency. There were a lot of men dying, need, um, you know, unnecessarily in, in that part yeah. of America. And it was about a young woman who, um, who uh, beyond all of the sort of bias towards men like that and the sort of, you know, people going, oh, you know, that's, we're all going to die if we breathe the same air as then, um, really helped them, took them into her home, went to visit them in hospital, held their hands as they died. And it's just, yeah, it's a really, really moving book. I think it's called All the Young Men or All the Men. Um, what is your favorite social media platform right now? LinkedIn. Me too. Oh, thank you oh, for I saying that. It. Everyone goes yeah, for Instagram and TikTok. I love LinkedIn. And it's crazy how the views work. You know, I guess it's the whole sharing community platform, but you can Yeah, really I really like it. Yeah, I think it's good. Morality. Yeah. I, I find a, there's a lot to read. I'm kind of moving back to Twitter a little bit, just to say. I don't know why, but Twitter's, I'm finding Twitter quite interesting at the moment, but I think that's just in the sort of run-up to the Elon Musk thing that people are going, what am I getting out of Twitter and is it something I'm interested in sticking it's around true. It's true. to see what happens with it anyway? I don't know, yeah. Um, is, do you have a favourite quote or mantra? Well, my dad once said to me, put off till tomorrow what you should have done today and that's just to stop me from being impulsive and making quick decisions. Put off till tomorrow what you should have done today. Yeah. Because I, I never do that. But it's just that sometimes I sort of think, okay, I'm not going to make a decision today. I'm going to come back to this tomorrow because you sometimes have a different view. And it's, I need um, to, I need to, I, I'm sure you're like me. Mantra, it's the same. Yeah. I need it. <laughs> yeah. It's that sort of just hold off a minute, you know? Yeah. Um, and also when I, when I first worked for Shua Mora, my boss, Michi Maeda, who I'm still very good friends with, 
um, said to me, you're too impatient. You're too impatient. He goes, one day when you grow up, you won't be as impatient anymore. And I am still totally impatient. When you are, you are. So that's not true. No. And and it's about harnessing it because it can actually be the best asset, I think. Not many people are built like us. So it's better to hone it in and make it to our advantage. Um, And my last question is, is, if you weren't a beauty entrepreneur or in the beauty space, what would you be doing right now? I'd really like to be a lawyer. I don't know why. I I mean, I I do enjoy the sort of political side of things. I don't know whether it would be in... um, as a civil servant, even I've just quite, I don't know if that's really weird. I do. I think the thing is, I would probably want to be a human rights lawyer. I think that's probably, if I'm really honest, that's the thing that sort of, those are the things that really get me sort of sparked a passion in me where, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're, you know, you're doing a form of this now with, with, the, with what you're doing with the British Beauty Council. And it's just, you can tell it's a part of who you are. So, I, I mean, I, been an absolute honor and i know everyone will be super keen now to follow you on your journey because um i'm sure they are they want to uh continue now seeing where a british beauty council goes but also where melee goes uh, with all your new ventures that i'm sure are coming so uh where can everyone follow you and british beauty council um so on um on linkedin <laughs> it's british beauty council and i think just millie kendall and then um instagram same british beauty council at british beauty council at millie kendall and then i i think on twitter the handles are slightly different but i think if you search you'll find us um but instagram and linkedin i think are the two best i put all the links in the summary so everyone can just tap straight away so it'll be easier i'll also put your linkedin in there i haven't done that for anyone else but i'll do it for you because it's i just think it's like um, i just think it's like there's something said it i you know i've been saying it for years and nobody believed me and then when we put the british beauty council on it like the following just went crazy and i was like see i told you it's about linkedin serious people it is business yeah so important it's yeah. so important no I couldn't agree more well Millie it's been an absolute pleasure and um, we'll just continue our conversation and uh, absolutely we'll see you very soon thanks Akash thank you for having me I hope you enjoyed this episode of Founded Beauty as much as I had making it and if you did please share it with a friend who you think will love it too Founded Beauty is available on all podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music Podcasts, the Acast app, and many more. And I'm also very proud to be part of the Acast Creator Network. So be sure to follow the podcast so you can get episodes as soon as they drop. We really appreciate every single follow, listen, share, and review. It truly goes such a long way and helps us reach new listeners. So as a little thank you, I will be hosting a giveaway each week on my Instagram channel at meta underscore a, where you can win some amazing Fable of Maine goodies. All you have to do is follow me, check out my stories and all will be revealed. Stay tuned for the next episode of Founded Beauty and don't forget to subscribe and follow so you can be notified when it drops. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.